Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode number 57, in which we will be remembering the life and the legacy of Jerry Jarrett, and I will be joined this week to do that by a writer and historian who was a very good friend of Mr. Jarrett and also helped Mr. Jarrett to write his autobiography, among many other books on pro wrestling history, especially the Memphis Territory. I'm talking about Mark James. Mark will be here in just a few minutes. We had a very in-depth discussion that I know you're going to love. Before we get to that, a few things I just wanted to mention and plug as far as stuff that I am working on in the coming weeks and months. Uh, First of all, I've mentioned this before, but for fans and listeners in the Michigan area, this is related to Blood and Fire, my book on the Sheik. That book, as I've mentioned, has been identified and, and is being awarded as one of the Michigan Notable Books of 2022 by the Library of Michigan. And that ceremony and event is taking place on April 22nd in Lansing, Michigan, at the Library of Michigan. I will be there on hand. If anybody listening to the sound of my voice will be there, I'd be happy to meet you and say hello. I'm also going to be making a couple of other connected appearances at Michigan libraries after that. The week of, uh, or rather the third week of May, I will be first on May 23rd at the Community District Library in Corona, Michigan. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And on Wednesday, May 24th, I will be at the St. Clair Community Library in Port Huron, Michigan. I will be giving talks and um, selling copies of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. So I hope to see you there if you are in the area. Also want to mention a couple of magazines I've talked about here before, but I finally got my physical copies delivered to me, and they both look fantastic. So I'm going to brag a little bit again about them, and I encourage you to get them. One is the May issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated with the former Sasha Banks, the current Mercedes Monet on the cover. And in that magazine, I have two columns. I have the lockup column, which is about the historic and record-breaking title reign of Roman Reigns. And I have my vintage retro column, The Way It Was, which focuses on the feud between Larry Zbysko and Bruno Sammartino, which I have been recently reliving thanks to all those great episodes of WWF Championship Wrestling that were recently added to Peacock. And I cannot leave out the 28th issue of Inside the Ropes magazine, issue 28 with MJF on the cover. This is a big one for me. As I've said, this is part two the concluding part of my breakdown of the classic North American pro wrestling territories, including a reprint, a smaller reprint of the territorial map 
That was featured in issue 27. In this second part, I look at the territories of California, other parts of the American West, as well as Hawaii and Canada and parts of the South as well. And I think you are going to love it. If you have part one, please get the continuation part two. You've got to have it. And that is in the 28th issue of Inside the Ropes magazine with MJF on the cover. You can get that at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. Now, enough about me and my shameless plugs. We are here this week to remember the career and the contributions of the great promoter, booker, mastermind, Jerry Jarrett. And so without further ado, I will take you to my conversation with Mark James. Okay, so my guest this week on Shut Up and Wrestle is one of the most admired and respected historians of pro wrestling, but particularly when it comes to Memphis wrestling. And the reason I have him here today, of course, as we all know, uh, we recently lost one of the greatest bookers, greatest promoters, greatest wrestling minds that the business has ever seen in Jerry Jarrett. And uh, I wanted to talk to somebody who really would be able to to speak about the legacy of this man and his importance to the business. So I thought of Mark right away. Um, as I said, he Mark has put out a lot of material on wrestling history, and I have to say that even his book, it's not just Memphis, his book on the the history of the Detroit big-time wrestling territory, his results book, was an indispensable reference guide that I used when I was doing my book on the original Sheik. But of course, as I said, Memphis wrestling will always be in his heart and soul and his true love. And so I would like to, without further ado, welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, Mark James. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I'm sorry that it has to be, you know, under circumstances like this. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's sad, but it's definitely a time to celebrate the man. Oh, I 100% agree with you. And I know that um, for for people that were in the know, right, or that knew of his condition or 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 struggles, it it wasn't exactly a surprise, right? I mean, it's never, it's it's always a shock to a certain degree, but it wasn't really a surprise, right? Yeah, um, it it happened very quickly, unfortunately. Um, Jerry had made a post, I want to say, I don't know, maybe around the 10th or 11th of January. In, uh, in his roundabout way, he was kind of talking about it indirectly. And uh, it, it was like, wow. Uh, he, he did this little story where he had, was walking his dogs and it was in the snow and how he ran into this old fella who was, who he was talking to out around this lake. And it, the old man was him and he was talking about having cancer. And, uh, I had emailed him. I no, actually, I'd sent him a message as soon as I read it and said, you know, I know you pretty well, Jerry, that old man is you, how are you doing? And he didn't message back. So I, you know, with going all that going on, I didn't bug him. He, uh, he called last week, um, last Tuesday, I guess it was around the 7th, I guess it's February 7th. And he says, well, I, I didn't get a chance to message you back, but you were the only one that figured out my story. <laughs> yeah. We ended up talking for about half hour, 47 minutes. It was a good talk, but, um, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had already gone through many rounds of chemo and actually had done some radiation, too. He sounded pretty weak, and he said he was weak. Uh, but that was a week before he passed. But, yeah, this it just was totally not expected to be this quick. Quick, yeah. And I, I would say it definitely did seem quick because I saw him last September at um at the cauliflower alley club reunion i don't know if you were there but they they um no, no. they honored they had a memphis night basically the first night uh, what used to be kind of called the baloney blowout or the bockwinkle blowout they yeah. had a memphis legends night and it was actually kind of hilarious because i don't know you, you may have heard the story but jerry overslept he slept through the whole thing and um he you know he was he was there for day two which was, yeah. you know, the, the regular, the, the reunion, the official day. But the day before, sure. you know, no one was there. And well, not no one was there. He wasn't there. I mean, Jimmy Hart was there. Yeah. Jerry Lawler was there. Jeff was there. And the funny thing was, Jeff was on his cell phone for like the first half of the ceremony. And some people around him were starting to go like, boy, this guy's kind of a jerk. Like, what's he doing? Why is he on his phone <laughs> during this ceremony? But the fact was, he was trying to get his dad and he said that when he was up at the podium, he was like, look, oh, my wow. dad is the number one person that we should be honoring right now if we're talking about Memphis wrestling. And he's up in his room, you know, asleep like they checked on him and he was up there. But but he was th there the next day. And, you know, I mean, he's he definitely was an older guy, but he seemed relatively oh, yeah. okay at that time. And this was September. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and. Like I didn't, I I had heard some rumblings back in December about it. And I don't know if that's when you found out about it or what, but, um, yeah, I mean, he was 80 years old, but he was in great shape. He was doing, he had had back in the day, um, when the TNA stuff was going on early two thousands, he had had some heart issues and actually, uh, had a pacemaker slash defibrillator in his chest. Uh, but he said, as soon as he got out of wrestling completely out, he, uh, he wasn't really having heart issues anymore. So was very happy about that. But, you know, with the issue of heart issues and the strain that chemotherapy and radiation puts on you, plus the cancer, sure. I, I guess it was just his time, unfortunately. And of course, I mean, for anybody losing a parent, it's always a terrible thing, but I, I can't even imagine what, you know, what it's like for Jeff right now. Cause I know that, he and his dad didn't speak for years and then they reconciled, which was nice to see yep. that they got their relationship back. But I know even from times that I've spoken to Jeff or been around him, that his family and his family's legacy in the business is very important to him. And it's something that he'll actually get really emotional talking about his father, his grandmother and things like that. And so, you know, I'm sure this is not easy for him at all. And, and the fact that he, he actually wrestled on dynamite was really to his yeah. credit. How I many, how many of us would have been able to do that? You know? So, I mean, and that's true. Jerry Jarrett, you got a booking, go meet it. <laughs> right. Right. And so how did you get to know Jerry? Uh, obviously, if you're in a position to be talking to him and messaging him in that way, you must've known yeah. him for a while. I'm, I'm thinking, right. Yeah. I, um, in the early 2000s, probably around 2003, 2004, I started. Back in those days, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot online at all about Memphis wrestling. You had all these other territories, and then back in those days, you had a lot of websites covering 
almost all the territories from mid Atlantic to Florida to Georgia, world class. But Memphis wasn't really represented. So I started doing that. Jump forward, I don't know, six months, a year, I had a website and I decided I wanted to start <clears throat> with all the work I was doing on it. I had all this information. It's like, I need to do a book on this. But I didn't know enough about the behind the scenes stuff. So I reached out. At that time, Jerry had a, I don't know if he had a website or something. There was a way to contact him through the internet. And I, and I did. And uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm nobody. I was never in the business. Watched it my whole life. I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s in Memphis and 90s. But would love to be able to talk to you, email you, send you some questions to try to find out how the business worked in the territory. <clears throat> Excuse me. He uh, was very open to it. Immediately called me. We talked, um, and that's how it started. And like I said, that was around 2004, maybe 2005. And they just steamrolled from there. And he, he seemed to be really, you know, enthusiastic about talking about things like that or sharing those kind of things. I mean, even recently, he was great on Tales from the Territory. I have to say, probably yeah. on the Memphis episodes, um, he might have been the most memorable person on there, which I'm not it's not like I'm saying it's a surprise or anything, but being mm -hmm. the oldest guy at the table, a table of old guys, but being the oldest, um, you know, he was, he probably had the best memory of all of them. It was pretty amazing. He was very, very um, compelling. I thought. Yeah. I, and I agree with you. It was very good to see him on there. I'm glad they got him for that. The deal, you know, back in the seventies, eighties, nineties, you really couldn't talk about those things. It was, right. it, you did not talk about them. And the fact that it was over and gone with, and, you know, after around 2000, when all the books started coming out and stuff like that, they were able to talk about it. And, you know, he could tell you how the magic tricks were done at that point. And he loved talking about it. He really did. It, he would just light up talking about the old stuff. And a guy like me, who's a sponge about it, we just had tons of conversations, tons of emails. Um, uh, Jerry loved to write. So, I mean, he would, I'd send him a list of like 10 questions and say, Hey, when you get a chance, can you tell me what went on here? And I'd put a couple things. He sent me pages and pages and pages of emails of what was going on, why it went on. And that allowed me as a writer to, you know, sh obviously show what happened in front of the camera, but then to flip it over and show you what was going on behind the scenes, behind the camera, why certain things happened, why they didn't, uh, you know, and it, it really helped give a whole picture of everything. And, you know, if I hadn't had Jerry Jarrett's involvement, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that as much. I, you know, some of the other guys would help, but, you know, it, it all came out of his head, out of Jerry Jarrett's head, all this booking back in the day, all these plans, all this stuff. And it was, you know, it, it was, you know, almost like one of his children. It was a baby of his. And, you know, it was just, it was, I was honored to be able to document some of it. It's great because I think, you know, you made a great point there and it's not just him. I'm sure there were a lot of guys who back in those days, they were proud of what they had accomplished and, you know, but they knew they couldn't really brag too much about it publicly because they'd be giving away secrets of the business. So a lot of them had a sort Absolutely. of like, 
keep their pride to themselves because I mean, heck, in, in some of the cases, no one even knew this wasn't the case with Jerry, but in some cases, no one even knew who the real promoter was. It was like a complete shadow person or the booker or whatever. But so, you know, it's interesting that how he he jumped at the chance to finally, sh- you know, share this with fans and with people that loved Memphis wrestling and and kind of feel like, OK, uh-huh. it's OK now I can I can brag a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the key. It's like he always appreciated the fans. The fan put their money down. The fan, you know, is what paid his check. And it, he was actually able, you know, at that point to connect with those fans who had made him have a good life, who had, you know, all these, like, you know, and I always would talk to him, you know, about it. And it was like, Jerry, all these memories I have of Memphis wrestling, you were the architect of it. Going to these matches as a kid, watching the Saturday morning Memphis show as a kid, that all started from ideas in your head. Now, yes, the wrestlers went out and did that, but it started from you. And, you know, it, it was just, to me, it was, it was amazing just because all this came out of one man, all these plans, all these ideas, all these angles. And it was just, you know, he, uh, he, he was cutting edge. He always tried new stuff. Um, he just was so, you, know, you were talking about the booking earlier, but that he he always welcomed wrestlers who wanted to learn how to book onto the booking team. Uh, I, I talked to Jerry about. It. I even talked to Bill Dundee about it. Ben Dundee came in from Australia in December of '74. Pretty quickly, Bill understood that you know if you, if you want to get into a territory good, you need to be on the booking committee because that kind of decides your future. Mm. So within I don't know with, within a year, Bill started going on the booking side as well and jerry just had one rule you got to you know we're going to meet 8 a.m every morning in my office in around nashville we're, every morning period you show up you can be on the team that's all it took was your dedication now, if you showed up one day a week you weren't going to be on it but if you showed up every day you would be on it and that's how dundee learned how to book how dutch mantel learned how to book how jerry lawler learned how to book uh, you know, that, 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 that his openness was a big deal to how that happened. He wasn't just running the show, being a sourpuss boss. He wanted people to learn and grow and he was welcome to show you how. And it really says a lot too, because, uh, you know, like you said, that dedication is what showed people that, you know, you, you were worthy of being a part of it because as we all know, I mean, look, a lot of wrestlers can be flakes. I mean, they get into the business oh, yeah. because in a lot of cases, it's like the only thing they could do because it's this crazy weird world that like, you know, will will embrace them. So to find people that are responsible, dependable, have their head on straight, you know, at, and are wrestlers, it that's like finding a diamond in the rough. So, you know, it, it, it says a lot. And, and of course, for people that, don't know if there are people that don't know it's important to point out that jerry also was a wrestler that he spent years as a wrestler and you know he made the transition i think if i'm correct me if i'm wrong but even when he was just a wrestler he still was somewhat involved in the office wasn't he with the with the ghoulist territory oh yeah yeah roy welch had basically made him the booker of Memphis around 67 68 okay and so he was literally you know what was he 
25, 26 years old, and he was the booker for Memphis. And uh, at the time, the, 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 the entire Tennessee territory was owned by Roy Welch and Nick Goulas. Nick, all Nick cared about was Nashville, Birmingham, uh, that area, the East Tennessee, Middle Tennessee side. Roy Welch lived in north, the northwest corner of Tennessee, a little town just north of uh, Dyersburg, Tennessee, which was about an hour and a half from Memphis. Roy wanted to keep Memphis in the territory uh, because um, Sam Muchnick had been wanting Memphis because it's right along the river, which is, you know, about three hours from Memphis to St. Louis. He was trying to take it. Roy didn't want that to happen. So Roy was personally booking Memphis in the 60s. Excuse me. Later on, this young upstart who has a lot of ideas how things should go, being Jerry Jarrett, he started taking Jerry to the shows with him. Roy did in Memphis. And they would talk about the drive from Memphis, uh, Nashville to Memphis. They would talk about the car. And all these ideas Jerry had, Roy would start implementing them. <clears throat> and Jerry told me about this. I'm watching this show, and it's like exactly like I told him in the car ride. He did it. So after a year of this, Roy, on the car ride down, says, look, you're booking Memphis from now. And he says, these guys aren't going to listen to me. I don't know what to do. He says, you've been booking a year. You just don't know it. Every week we talk, I'm putting in there what you said. You can book. You know how to book. And that's how it started. And then right around the same time is when he started wrestling. So, you know, you jump forward a couple of years and everything he learned, he learned in the ring as well. He knew how to do it from growing up in the business and watching it. He knew he had to get in the ring to, to get the psychology down to understand it completely. And he did that. Uh, and his teaming with Toji Yamamoto and later with Jackie Fargo. Uh, <clears throat> like I said, he was only about Oh, let's see, 19, he was born in 40, <clears throat> excuse me, 42, so 25, 26, like I said, mm-hmm. and he was running the show. You know, I never knew about that that St. Louis um, connection that, that much Nick was interested. It's funny to me because, I mean, look, as we all know, especially with what Memphis became, I mean, you couldn't think of yeah. two more different wrestling products than st louis and memphis like i i don't even know what would have happened if if much nick although they always say that you know the promoter you train the fans to accept the wrestling that you present but you know it makes me wonder would the the memphis fans would have made of you know that that st louis style uh, you know wrestling at the chase style wrestling that would be a pretty big uh, shift (laughs) yeah well and you know you look at the big picture on it is you know there was no cable tv in those late sixties, early seventies, the magazines weren't as prevalent as they became in the late seventies, all the after magazines and such, uh, the fan clubs were existent, but very few people knew about those, uh, you know, the mail, uh, where they would switch programs from different territories and do the mail loop and all that with the fans. So it's like, whatever you had is what you had. Right. And people always ask me that same old question. Well, what was the best territory? I said, whatever you grew up on back in the day, because it was the only wrestling in the world to you. And it feels like that was even more the case in Memphis or the Memphis area than in a lot of other places. Like people have always talked about how Memphis was really, truly, truly 
this wrestling bubble where like, you know, the Memphis wrestling on TV was like one of the highest rated shows in the market, but you know, yeah, ahead, of, ahead of everything. Rated, yeah. yeah. And, and how yeah. there really was no other penetration of any other kind of wrestling. And so you had like this intense fan loyalty to the point where even the WWF was having trouble trying to figure it out and get in there because it was such a loyal kind of like bubble of wrestling fans, even more than, than most other territories. Yeah. And then the, the late mid to late eighties, when WWF tried to come in, Jim Crockett promotions tried to come in, uh, watch mid South and around 85 tried to come in and they just, they couldn't get a foothold at all just because whenever they would have a card at the Coliseum, Jerry Jarrett and or Jerry Lawler would just have a softball game at the ball stadium next door, the local AAA <laughs> team. They would use their stadium and have a free ball game. Come on out and see the wrestlers play go, play uh, softball. And there'd That's be great. as many people there, if not more, to see the ball game than there would be in the Coliseum. I had even heard that one of the reasons that when Vince brought in Harley Race in 86 and made him the king one of the reasons he did that was he was trying to uh, this it just sounds ridiculous to me but one of the reasons is he was trying to like leverage away into memphis so he was going to bring this other wrestling king uh to memphis which i guess they tried to block i don't know if there's any truth to that yeah well i mean he only blocked it lawler sued him right and uh and it was blocked he couldn't do it in tennessee i mean everywhere else he could still be king harley race but yeah, in Tennessee, the uh, court said, no, that's your trademark. That's your deal. You know, no one else can be called that in wrestling. So it worked for here locally, which is fine. I mean, they never did get a big foothold in Memphis ever. And the other guys eventually, you know, ran out of business. So, you know, Crockett sold off and Watts sold to Crockett and all that. But yeah, it just, it was hard for anybody else to get here because Memphis had the weekly show. It was from Memphis. It was about Memphis. The people knew the wrestlers they would see them all around town. So, I mean, it was like homegrown completely. And, um, you know, the, the way Jarrett as well as Lawler were booking, because by the mid-80s, Lawler was booking half the time. He, I believe they would take turns booking six months at a time. Jarrett would do it for six months, then Lawler would do it for six months. And um, it was just, they were able to really just keep it on its edge, keep it on the edge. Uh, Jarrett was so good at bringing new talent, young guys. He wasn't afraid of new guys. The first three or four matches on the card were always against, you have a, 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 a grizzled old veteran like a Toji Yamamoto or a, uh, who else? Uh, Frank Morale or all these old guys. And they'd be against some kid, a rookie. And it was so the kids could wrestle in front of five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand people and get used to being in front of the people as well as being able to use the psychology and see, you know, Tojo could do a little grimace like he was reaching his pants to get a weapon or salt or something. And the fans would lose their, you know, lose it, just go crazy yelling and screaming. It helped the kids learn how to do the business. And that, you know, like I said, you know, when Jerry Lawler started with Jarrett back in 72, three, he was only like 22, 23 years old. You know, all these guys were young when they started, and Lawler is the greatest example. He would see things in people and 
whatever their strength was, he would push that, you know, and if that didn't work, well, let's try a different angle on you. And, you know, he wouldn't give up on people. And, you know, after certain things that just didn't work, then yeah, you were gone. But, you know, a lot of guys wanted just veterans. Jarrett was never that way. He would take whoever it was. If they had some talent, if they had something that looked special with them, he wanted to try. So he, he and Lawler, are, like you said, they're working together going back to the early 70s. And Jarrett is working, is booking for Welch and Goulas. But then by 77, um, Jerry, the two Jerry's, right? They got together and, and decided to, to kind of branch off and do their own thing. How much do you know about, you know, did he ever talk about what motivated them to do that? Like, at what point did they sit there and go, you know what? I think we could do this on our own. Like, like what made them decide to do that instead of just keep keep on keeping on? Yeah, I did a book uh, on 1977, which is year it happened. Um, and it covers in the book, it, it's like a yearbook and it covers the whole thing. The split happened because Jared had been paying Goulas a lot of money to buy into the company. He thought he was a partial owner. There was a deal where Goulas wanted, Goulas is into the territory by 77 was not doing well, which was Nashville, Chattanooga, Huntsville, that whole area. And it was doing actually really bad. It wasn't making a lot of money. What happened was Goulas told Jarrett that he wanted to put his son, George Goulas, on the card. Uh-huh. George doesn't have a great reputation. No. His entering work at the time was not very believable. And if the fans don't believe, they're not buying a ticket. That's That was the key to the psychology was they have to believe in the stuff being real. And they weren't believing it was real with George and tickets were way, way down in middle Tennessee. So Jarrett being the part owner, cause he's been paying says, Nick, I'm a partial owner. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. Nick comes back and says, well, you need to read those papers we gave you because all you did was buy the rights to buy part of the company. You never bought any of the company. And with that, Jerry went and talked to lawyers and it's like, look, yeah, you could fight them in court, but at the end of the day, all you would have is the right to buy. You still wouldn't own any of the company. So Jerry quit the company. He went and talked to a bunch of the wrestlers, uh, Lawler, Dundee, Rocky Johnson, several others. He was really good friends with Eddie Graham in Florida, who was at the time was NWA president. And he talked to him too. And, um, uh, he decided to open up his own Memphis promotion. Lance Russell, who and Dave Brown were the two guys who hosted the Saturday morning show, which was on Channel 13. As soon as Jarrett did the company, they saw there was a some type of war going to go on between Jarrett and Goulas. So Channel 13 canceled the show. Says we don't we don't want any news dealing. We don't want to see any newspaper deals because I believe Scripps Howard owned them at the time about some rinky dink wrestling show in Memphis with our name with it. We don't want that. So they canceled it. Jarrett went to another local promotion, Channel 5, and says, look, I can deliver Jerry Lawler, the biggest sports star in Memphis. I can deliver Lance Russell, the former program director at Channel 13, and I can uh, also produce the number one weatherman in Memphis, Dave Brown. Channel 5 jumped on it. They got their new Saturday morning show. Um, So Goulas now had no TV in Memphis. He ran 
probably the, the, the feud actually lasted about two months and there was probably three to four shows by Goulas at the Coliseum still. Cause he had a contract. The last show was 434 tickets sold. So he was gone. Yeah. He lost Memphis. They went to the NWA. Uh, Goulas had a big, big to do about it and wanted them to kick Jared out. <laughs> Excuse me. Wanted them to kick Jared out of the NWA and tell him he couldn't do it and give Memphis back to him. So they went to Eddie, Eddie Graham and Graham said, look, you guys are both producers. We're going to let y'all fight it out. Whoever wins, wins. And that's what happened. Jarrett won. and was still an NWA member. And um, Jarrett ended up buying Goulas out just because his business kept suffering around 1980. Um, when they did make the switch, the only people that didn't go with Jarrett were Jackie Fargo and Toji Yamamoto. They went with uh, Nick Goulas. But that was to be expected. They had been in, in the business for 30, 40 years at that point. They, they, they knew you stuck with, you know, the established people who was Goulas. You stick with them. You don't go against, you don't go outlaw, which is what Jarrett was basically doing. Everybody else, all the young people went with uh, Jarrett. And um, that's about the story. He got Lawler, by the way. Jerry Jarrett got Lawler, but he gave him 25% of the company. Memphis. The Memphis side of the promotion. So right. uh, his his mom, Christine Jarrett, had 25%, and Jerry Jarrett had 50%. Yeah, I was going to say, getting Lawler on board, really, was it, that had to be the make-or-break thing because, I mean, he was the top star. He was the hottest draw, even by 77. So I imagine that was the sink or swim. Like, if he couldn't get Lawler to go with him, it, it probably wouldn't have worked oh, yeah. out. I'm guessing they probably all would have went at or whoever Lawler went with probably would have been the winner. Yeah. Lawler was the key in the summer of 74. Lawler had 10 sellouts at the mid South Coliseum. Jerry Jarrett had been booking his uh, quest for the gold run, uh, trying to get Lawler a world title shot with Jack Briscoe at the end of summer. Memphis was traditionally always a, the, the best attendance was the summer because kids were out of school. It was very family friendly at the time. They would, um, and like I said, he, the, Jarrett brought in a bunch of top 10 guys out of the NWA. Yeah. Harley Race, Dory Funk Jr., uh, Dick the Bruiser, the Sheik, all these famous names of that whole summer. And because of it, they Lawler literally had 10 sellouts that summer. So from that point forward, Lawler was made. And by 77, I mean, he could do no wrong. Memphis did not have a professional level sports team. There was right. no NFL. There was no baseball, major league baseball. There was no NBA, no ABA. So when you have that void, you have, you know, minor league baseball teams, you have college teams, but with that lack of a major sports team, it, you have these, you know, guys who want sports and in, you know, in a roundabout way, Memphis wrestling was a sports soap opera. The, the stories, you know, just like on um, when they were on the Vice show, Jarrett said personal sales, I believe, or something like that. Personal yeah, stories, yeah. sell. Personal issues, and, and I think, yeah. Yeah, personal issues, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what he knew. He knew psychology. 
you know, the, the, the oldest book in the world is, you know, the Bible, good versus evil. It's a simple plan. Use it. It still works. <laughs> right. And that's what Jerry did. That's what Jerry did. And he understood psychology better than anybody else I've ever known in my life. He, he would just lay these little pearls of wisdom down in you sometimes and just blow you away. It's like, that's so simple, but my gosh, it works. It's a, yeah. And that's what we did for 40 years. And, and he we... threw it all back. He's the one that did the thing about the Bible. I just said, that was a phrase from him. He says, it'll always work because it has always worked. Yeah. I think he even mentioned that on tales from the territories and you see with, with some of these, with a lot of these great wrestling minds, the great bookers, whenever you, you hear about them or read about them, a lot of them seem to have that sense. Like you were saying to just, they have, there's a certain creative sense that they have, and it's not super complicated, you know, wrestling, Wrestling is simple at its base, but to understand the psychology of it is a gift sometimes to really get what works. And, and you know, I'm not the first one to say this, but when people think a lot of times when people think of Memphis and that territory and his time, it was the it's the heat. They always talk about the heat. I mean, there was even the documentary Memphis yeah. Heat. It The heat that they were able to generate was just off the charts. And I, I, I think, I feel like they were ahead of their time in a way, and they don't always get credit for that. You know, people talk about, you know, ECW in, in the modern sense of like the influence they had and things like that. But, but way before that it's Memphis, I think. And in fact, I think even specifically had an influence on people like Paul Heyman. It had an influence on Atsushi yeah. Onita in Japan with FMW and just all these things oh, that yeah. would snowball later on. Even the idea, yeah. like you said, of the show becomes, and I mean this in a positive way, the show becomes like a soap opera. It's more than just a sporting event. It's this thing where you have guys up and down the card that have issues with each other. That wasn't always the case with wrestling shows back then. A lot of times, sometimes they tended to be a little bit dry and there might be like one major angle at the top and the rest of it was very by the numbers. And those guys were, I mean, it was, it got pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. And it's why make it harder for yourself. If you can do a little talking for a little while or do a jump in or this or that, and you're already selling your tickets, you know, it, it, that's the thing, you know, Toji Yamamoto was not the greatest wrestler in the world and never was, but he could get more of a fan reaction going from just putting his hand by his tights, like he was going in it. And, you know, 10,000 people at the Coliseum are losing their minds over that. Just, he could get that psychology and just do those little things. So he didn't have to, you know, do all these wrestling moves, you know, hip toss, karate chop, um, <laughs> hip that, that, that was basically his repertoire was karate chops and hip toss and that's all tojo did you know but you, all these other little things he did all people were yelling and screaming and going this and doing that and it was just amazing just because with so little he could get so much yeah then that's a lot of that is a lost art i mean the idea of of working and what, what constitutes working, you know, there's so many things that go yeah. into it. There's guys that, that, uh, like you said, with, with somebody like Yamamoto, who, 
you have to think about well what does working actually mean you know i mean if they're if they're getting the mm-hmm. reaction if they're if they're selling tickets if they're making you believe it doesn't really matter how you get there it's just that you get there that's what that's what counts yeah yeah you mentioned onita onita was in memphis in 81 and tojo right. managed him he was in a team and it's like you know he was young skinny little guy back then and he learned a lot about the stuff the memphis style from that you know that run uh you know, and, and just all that, it was a great training ground for guys. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in New York and, and I was a WWF fan and, and it was hard in yeah. those days to get, especially in the eighties, nineties, it was hard for us to get access to specifically something like Memphis wrestling. And then when you, when you get yeah. to the, the days of the tape trading, I mean, that was like an, uh, a mind-blowing experience for me and i've said it before but so many people were discovering memphis wrestling at that time because for for whatever reason i mean you may know i don't know but like so much of it survived and so there were so many tapes floating around and for me the thing that solidified it well there were two things obviously there was the andy kaufman stuff i mean that was totally fascinating for me especially as a teenager like trying to wrap my head not really understanding how the business worked you know and trying to understand like what is happening here is this you know is has this guy lost his mind and the other thing was to this day i I still count it as one of the greatest things i've ever seen in wrestling it's the empty arena match with terry funk and jerry lawler oh yeah that thing and absolutely I, i think i first saw it on the pro wrestling illustrated tape that they put out, uh, I think it was on there, Lords of the ring, but it, it was on bootlegs yeah. too. And I mean, especially for a kid growing up with, you know, Hulk Hogan, Andre, the giant, the ultimate warrior, whatever it is. And then to see something like that, where he's trying to stab the guy's eye out. And then you have Terry just being Terry. Is as, it reverse? Yeah. Right. As great as he was. <laughs> and then he's crying to Lance Russell. I mean, it was, and Lawler's <laughs> walking off. It really is one of the best things that I've ever seen to this day in wrestling. Yeah. They, uh, they needed something to happen. Uh, Lawler and, and Funk had been having a feud. And they did that because Terry, and it had been going on several weeks, but the problem was Terry was going to Japan for like three weeks. So they had to do something to get him out of the picture. And so they came up with that and did that. Actually, Monday afternoon before the Monday night matches, they did that because they had the Coliseum rented, you know. So it's like, well, we got this. Let's do something with this. And Terry, I don't know if it was Terry came up with it or Terry, Jerry, and Jerry or how it came up. But, yeah, they, uh, they made magic. They made magic. Is it true that Terry does not like to talk about that angle? I've heard that, and I've never, I, if it's true, I don't understand why or that he wasn't happy with it, or for whatever reason, he doesn't like to talk about it. No, I've, I don't, I haven't heard that. I mean, he's, I've heard people tell heard me, him. like, don't mention that to him. He doesn't, you know, he, he gets oh, very upset or he doesn't want to talk about it. I don't know. He wanted, he talked to Jerry. He wanted to, like, rent all the arenas, all the holidays. Or, you know, like rent the Omni over Thanksgiving or something and do, you know, an empty arena match. It's it's like, that building costs a lot of money, Terry. We, we, (laughs) you know, and we're not selling tickets for it. So, no, we're not doing that. Now, for for all that, Terry's great. 
for all that kind of stuff. And and I mean, really, they were that territory was known for creativity and and not being afraid to try anything. Like I think it says so much about Memphis because like there was a little bit of of debate on Twitter in the days after mm-hmm. Jerry's passing of, you know, I think Dave Meltzer had said something to the effect of, he talked about how at the time uh, Memphis was seen by some in the business as kind of a joke, or it was seen as they're exposing the business. And then he also Meltzer also said something in a later tweet to the effect of, you know, Jerry Jarrett was one of the greatest wrestling bookers of all time. And one of the most successful ever. And you had people saying, well, how could both of these things be true? And Meltzer must be nuts. And I was one of the people saying both of those things were kind of true. I mean, it was one of the hottest territories. It was one of the most successful, but it also was one of the most outrageous over the top. They would try anything like the, the, the Kaufman thing is the best example because there was not a, in 1981, 82, there was not a promoter in the country that would have wanted to touch that and especially, you know, they went. He he had gone to Vince McMahon. Nobody would touch yep. that except for them. And Bill Apter was the one who had the the thought of going. Yeah. You know what? I know these guys down in Memphis. They will absolutely go for this. So I mean, it was yeah. it was a unique well, kind and of. And it place. started out. He didn't start out with him going to face Lawler. It was all about. And he talked about it on the Vice show. They did give a whole episode to about it. He was just going to fight the women. He just wanted to do that. And Lawler and Jarrett are like, heck. Come on, we want the rub. Some national guys on our show? Heck yeah, guys on national TV every Thursday night on Taxi. Come on in. He'd pay his way, he'd do this, he'd do that. You know, and that October <clears throat> or November, he was in and he fought the lady, and the one lady actually legitimately almost beat him. And Waller pushed him away after the match because he was like kicking her afterwards. Right, because Lawler had been at ringside when they had a match because he was afraid she was going to beat Andy and Andy would lose and it would kill the angle. So Lawler was going to have to do something in case she got close to pinning him, just right. to make that, sure that the would kill continued. everything. Yeah, if she if she beat yeah, him, that because all right, he got beat, he's over, he's gone. We lose the rub of dealing with this Hollywood guy. So after the match, Kaufman's kicking at her and stuff, trying to kick her out of the ring. Lawler runs over and just. Basically, you know, imagine a 230 pound guy shoving you pretty darn hard and it, you know, knocked Kaufman off his feet and the crowd lost their minds. I mean, they, you know, because Andy was hated. He knew psychology. He knew how to get hated. He had done it. And so that's when Jarrett said, look, we got to put y'all in the ring and jump forward, I guess, six months, April, first week, first Monday in April. And they had that match. And everybody knew Lawler would win, and he did the right thing with it. He destroyed Kaufman. <clears throat> so much so that wrestling people thought it was fake. I mean, that it was real. Yeah, the Bill Watts thing, right? I mean, Bill Watts coming yeah. on. Yeah, Watts, on Paul Bosch sent him a telegram as well. Uh, he got booked by Bosch because of it down in Houston. <clears throat> oh, that's great. And Andy Kaufman yeah. went to Houston. I didn't. I don't think I knew that either. No, no, no. Lawler got oh, Lawler did because he oh, never right. okay. Yeah, Lawler did. He had him come in a couple shots just because he was so happy with how Jerry had protected the business and done the right thing and all this. That's amazing. And and I wonder too. Well, you may know because we we were talking about the partnership with 
Jarrett and Lawler. And I know you'd said that they sort of had that six month, six month thing where one would book for half a year and one would book for the other. Um, in with the territory like that, that had so many different angles and feuds and things, how, how much of that was Jarrett's influence and how much of it was Lawler's? Cause I know some people were telling me that, well, you know, the, some of the more, outlandish things that was more lawler than jarrett like like frank you know bringing in like like leatherface and frankenstein and all that kind of thing how did that actually break down you know you know what i mean like was was yeah memphis had always done that with the creatures yeah. uh you can look in the 1960s you had the mummy you had dr frank back then which is frankenstein got in a frankenstein mask and you had all that in the 60s before jared even got there um uh, <clears throat> And so it just continued, you know, and it wasn't like they were, you know, and the later on the Freddies and the Leatherfaces and all that, they came in the late eighties, early nineties. That was just, I don't know, I guess cause horror stuff was very hot at that time. They just tied in with that, whatever was hot at the time they tied in back in 77, when star Wars was out, they had Lord Vader as a wrestler, you know, put a black mask on the guy with the black cape. Right. He wrestled as that, you know, uh, you know, they also had in the late eighties, they had, uh, the, uh, some playoff of the teenage mutant Ninja turtle and a Calabunga was his name. And he was just a teenage mutant Ninja turtle outfit on the guy right. that that was normal. If there was anything hot socially wise, uh, they would play off it. The, uh, the split started happening with them. Jared had always booked from 67 up to 83 and 83 is when they start splitting time and to keep things fresh. Sometimes Jerry would send someone else in this place to do his six months. He might send Robert Fuller in to do booking for six months. Jerry Lawler might be tired of it and bring in Eddie Gilbert to book for six months during his time. So it was, you know, it was give and take on that. So that helped keep things fresh as well. And um, Jerry Jarrett, that is actually got out a couple of years before they closed up, right? I mean, you know, what was then the USWA finished up in 97, but I think Jared yeah. had already sold his interests a couple of years before that, right? Yeah, the whole XL Sports things and Larry Burton, that guy who was kind of like questionable. Uh, Jared was trying, I'm sorry, Burton had a buyer, XL Sports out of, I think, Cleveland, Ohio, wanted to buy Memphis Wrestling. And so he was brokering a deal between Lawler and Jarrett and XL Sports. Jarrett didn't like Burton. He didn't trust Burton. So he said, look, Jerry, I'm not going to stand in your way of this deal, but buy me out, fair market value, and then you go and you sell to XL or do whatever you're doing. I just want to be out of it. So that's why that happened that way. Uh, it wasn't because he was out and done. It's just Jerry wanted to go ahead and sell it. They got these guys on the line. And uh, he said, okay, well, just pay me, and then you can go get all that money. So, yeah, Lawler's been sued, I forget how many times, by XL Sports. The guys at XL Sports weren't the smartest guys. They, uh, you know, Memphis Wrestling, all the wrestlers were on there by a handshake deal. So there was no contract with any wrestler. There was right. no tape bank of all the videos of all the matches and everything. There was nothing. So, so what were you actually buying, right? I mean, 
that and that's why they that's why Jerry Lawler looked at it as oh this guy's a goose. He's not buying <laughs> anything, but he's going to give me a lot of money. Right, but that I Lawler's guess I... always said ever since then because of all the times you've been sued by him, he says I spent more in lawyer bills than I ever did with what they gave me for it. Oh, I believe it, and and I mean I guess that would also explain what finally did them in because I mean it, it, as amazing as it is that they continued on after all the other territories were gone really yeah. as, except maybe puerto rico but i mean in mainland united states and canada were gone um yeah as as amazing as that was it almost felt like they could have kept going if if they had if they had wanted to because they had just created this culture in memphis that was not going to go away Agreed. And even though the, the you know sales were down, they could they, they still had a good base. You know, they could get several thousand, you know, two thousand people for a show, a bigger show. So I mean it wasn't like it was all oh, you're selling ten tickets, fifty tickets, hundred tickets. No, no, it was never that. You know, now they weren't doing ten thousand, they weren't doing eleven thousand. No, by the the late two uh the late nineties, they were not, but they could still get several thousand and you know, the ticket prices have gone up by then, so ten Ten dollars a ticket, you know, and you've got two thousand people. That's twenty grand for one night. And I'm I'm guessing that's not that, horrible. No, but yeah, that's true. I, but uh, I'm also thinking that the deal that they had in the '90s with the WWF probably helped keep them going too. I imagine they had to be getting money from them, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they were bringing guys in. I mean, Kurt Angle trained in Memphis. The Rock, uh, Flex Cavana, who was the Rock. Uh, you know, all these guys coming through and it helped. And it, that Memphis, like I told you earlier, you know, they had always had the younger guys. It was not a big deal to train guys in Memphis because that's what they had always done and they continued to do it. Um, yeah. And, and it, it, you know, it, it did help. It did help. So it helped things keep going. And then I guess, you know, a number of years later, because if we're saying now he sold his stake, Jarrett did in 95. And then by the early 2000s, now he's going into business with Jeff. So how much do you know about that? Was that kind of, I always got the impression that that was, you know, Jeff had been obviously working for WCW. Now WCW was gone and it seemed like it was more kind of Jeff's um, thing that he wanted to do to try to create competition for the WWF. Mm -hmm. And, and then he got his dad on board with him. Is that kind of like how it, how it went down. Yeah. I, I think personally it was, you know, he had burned some bridges with WWF. Oh yeah. WWE yeah. and, uh, which we all know. And, uh, and he knows. And then like you said, WCW, you know, imploded and was gone. And so where is he going to wrestle? So I think it became a thing. Well, let's try to do this. Let's figure out a, you know, dad's pretty smart. So he talked to Jerry and Jerry's like, well, you know, we could, instead of doing, you know, big deal shows we do a, a cheaper weekly pay-per-view every week of our show, regular show and don't charge a lot no one had done it before let's try that and see how it goes so um but yeah i mean it, it you know and then it sort of imploded as well so you know the but weekly yeah i don't know tons about that and he jerry had put out a book about his time in tna and it's still on Amazon. I'm not sure what the, I can't remember what the name of it is, but he had put one out on that before we worked on his autobiography. 
and it's been out there at least 10 years, if not 15 years, maybe now. But uh, he has about all that, and it, it, he loved to write. Like I said earlier, he really did, and he just he was great at it, and uh, he's very honest about it. He, he talks about his shortcomings in it and what worked, what didn't work, and, you know, uh, it, it, it lays it out there. And I'm glad you mentioned the, the autobiography, too, because I was curious what it was like working with him on that. I mean, obviously, for anybody that has had to kind of work with somebody on their book in that way, you know, sometimes the experience can be very different depending on who you're working with. Oh, and, yeah. And even or even the amount of work that you have to do is going to be different. So what was that like? How did it happen? Uh, like I, I, at the beginning of this, I told you about how I started doing the website and then documentation of that led to books. And I started doing, I'd probably done half a dozen books and, and, uh, Jerry was a huge cheerleader about my stuff. He loved it. And I would tell anybody about it. And he came to me one day, we were at a show, not sure we might've been in it, fan fest in Charlotte, North Carolina. I want to say that was about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. He says, Mark, you know, I've got, I've had the hard issues. All my grandchildren are little. You never know when your time's up. He said, I would love to do a book on my life. He said, I'd done the TNA book, but I, you know, that, that, that doesn't really involve the kids. I want to do a book a month from when I was born until I guess late nineties. And I said, Oh, well, yeah, whatever you need, I'll go ahead and help you. He says, no, I want you to be part of this with me and work with it on me and work with it, work with me on it. And, uh, uh well, I want you to release it. I said, okay, sure. So that's how it started. And, uh, I was honored to do it. And we, I don't know, it probably took three or four months. Like, a, and it falls back in that thing about him being a great writer. He gave me a 450 page manuscript. And then I started to work on that. And that just, oof, that took months. It's a monster manuscript. And so it's like, okay, let's, it's the old adage. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's one of those. Right. You, uh, you break it up in chapters and <laughs> you start going through it. And then you make, you start looking at dates and make sure the timelines are right. And, you know, they were doing so much stuff in his life. It's like, you know, trying to, that took the longest time was making sure the timeline was pristine and there wasn't anything out of place because there was oh tons of new stuff I hadn't known about when they tried to buy the AWA from Vern. Um, just so much stuff in there. In a way, though, it's kind of a blessing, you know, when you're working with someone on a book like that to have somebody that is enthusiastic about writing, that wants to take an active role that will, you know, put something together as opposed to in, in many other cases. And you may have even had this experience yourself where it's somebody who kind of just wants to tell you stories and then you take notes and you write a book out of it and, and pretend to be them basically. <laughs> yeah. I can't write books like that. I never <laughs> have been able to, it's uh, or say, here, go listen to this radio interview. I did and write a book on that. It's like, no, nope, not doing this. Uh, yeah. And that, he he expected gung-ho people who were going to, with a good work ethic, who were willing to work their tails off. But on the flip side of that, that's what he did. He always worked hard. He always worked his tail off. It was never, oh, someone else will do it. It was always, I'll do this. And that's what he did with the book. I mean, if, 
you know, he, uh, like I said, it was 450 solid pages. It wasn't fluff. It was every page was real. And, uh, he, he wrote it all. I mean, it's, it was, like I said, it was hard to get done just cause there's so much volume of it, but you know, we whittled it down. I think we ended up being around 300 pages when we were done just because, you know, some things repeat and some things don't match and it's not a good fit. And you know how that is with books and it was just normal, but no, I mean, he was very, very pleased when we, uh, we got done. Like I said, he wanted his grandchildren to be able to know about his life. And that's what the book was done for. That was the hundred percent reason why. That's great. And, um, yeah, I mean, when we got done, he thanked me. He says, and many times over the past decade, he's thanked me. He says, you know, luckily I've been around and, you know, my heart's been going great. And so they've gotten to know me, but, you know, I was worried they would. And this book helped that in case it happened. So he was always very thankful for the book. And it's fascinating that he had such uh, kind of self-awareness to want to do something like that. And it also shows to me the fact that, he definitely had to have been aware of what an important mark he he left on the wrestling business. You know what I mean? He, not not to say that he yeah. was he was self centered or anything, but he had to have an awareness of how important he was in some way. Oh uh, yeah, he and it, it goes deeper than that. It's that for many many years, no one knew he was the promoter of Memphis, the Booker. No one knew. Most of the seventies people didn't know, you know, when he ended up going splitting from Goulas in 77, Oh, well, he's the owner, not realizing about the booking side of things. Many people didn't know that, uh, people, Oh, well, he was a wrestler. He used to team with, uh, Tojo. That was their, the involvement they thought. So he had done such a good job of not changing their thoughts to keep the fans, you know, sort of in the dark about it. Uh, that, you know, it, it, it was like, you know, I, I, that's why I wanted his grandchildren to know part of it was, look, I did more than just merit wrestle. I did all these things. Uh, you know, we talked, he talked uh, in the book. One of the things was he used to work, I think, for Schwinn. Before he got into wrestling in the late 60s, he had gone away and went to work for Schwinn Bicycles. He was the guy that invented the banana seat, if you remember those. I and sure bicycles. do. Yes. Yeah. Jerry Jarrett created that. He invented wow. that. Wow. He told you know, that, that new way of thinking, let's change things up. Let's try something. That's what he did. He was just always, whatever he did, he tried to put a new spin on it, a positive spin. Let's try something new. He, he was very much a guy where the glass is always half full and he didn't focus on the negative of things. He was always upbeat and positive. It's like, all right, well, we can't change it. Let's keep going forward. guys. That's amazing. So the man who who basically created uh, the Rock and Roll Express also created the the banana seat for bicycles. Yeah, the Rock and Roll Express, the <laughs> Fab, uh, you know, all these things. Yeah, yeah, he did the banana seat with uh, Schwinn. But when he he just he said uh, he had been there a while in the corporate thing, he just didn't like it anymore. He said it was just too cutthroat. So he comes back to wrestling. <laughs> he knew it. He grew up on it. Yeah. That says a lot, though, if you think about it, that he's going to say, well, I'm going to go into the wrestling business because it's less cutthroat, you know? (laughs) Yeah. He knows the rules, though. He understands them. He can work within those boundaries. Right. Yeah. And he he was a unique person. And I wish I'd gotten to to talk to him more. You know, I spoke to him briefly 
at CAC. I never really had a, I've spoken to Jeff a few times over the years, obviously, but I've never really had a chance to pick Jerry's brain the way I would have loved to been able to do, but that's, I mean, I don't need to tell you, but I mean, that was a very fortunate position for you to be in. Yeah. Yeah. And I was honored to be in it. Um, I made a post the other day about him when he passed and was just like, you know, I didn't deserve anything from him. I, I just, you know, he allowed me into his world and explained it all to me and just out of friendship. And that's how any fan came up to him. He'd shake your hand and talk to you. He genuinely would talk to you and not just, you know, whatever. It was real to him. It, fans were real to him, and he cared about them, and he appreciated them. <laughs> and at his age, 80 years old, fans coming up and knowing who he is, he, he really appreciated that. Well, Mark, you know, it's funny. I can't I, – I, I'm glad that I was able to get a hold of you to do this. And, and I, I feel like when this happened, I was trying to think of – who to who to speak to because you know when i when lanny poffo passed away i had my friend keith yep. greenberg come on who knew lanny well and we talked about lanny and and i kind of thought it, it might be a good idea to do this with other important people and and um honestly like <laughs> short of jerry the king lawler himself who i have no illusions would would want to do my show at any time soon but <laughs> short of him i can't think of a better person i mean this has been great it's been great having good, you good. here to talk about this stuff yeah jerry you know uh, jerry was my friend and i just appreciate him so much and all he had done for me when he didn't have to do anything uh and it just, you know, it's almost two decades and I was just so appreciative of him and anything I can do to make sure people know how Jerry really was, I'm going to do it. So, uh, I just want his legacy to people to remember what a great, great guy he was. Well, I'm hoping that in our own way, then that, that this episode and this show could help contribute to that because that's really, that's my, my goal behind doing it. So thank you. Me too, man. Me too. I was very glad and I was very honored to be able to have that conversation, to be able to do that, to remember and to recognize Jerry Jarrett for his immense contributions to this industry that we all love so much, especially to so many of our favorite memories of old school wrestling, which is really what this show is all about. So thank you, Mark, for coming on board and being a part of this and sharing so many of your thoughts and memories with us. Keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come as we will continue to have interesting and thought-provoking guests. Next week's guest for episode 58, this is going to be a good one for the folks that enjoy the -the behind-the-scenes of WWE episodes because it's going to be an artist whom you may or may not know. His name is Tom Fleming, and he worked for the WWF throughout the 1990s, designing characters, designing posters. And I think you're going to be surprised at some of the iconic characters of that era of the WWF that he helped to create and to design. So that's going to be next week's show. Other great guests in the weeks to come include the Midwest referee and promoter and one-time associate of the Sheik, A.T. Huck. He is on the way, as well as Michael Cavaccini, 
author of the upcoming book on the history of TNA Impact Wrestling, Phil Schneider of the Way of the Blade book and podcast, as well as TheRinger.com, will be coming to Shut Up and Wrestle, as well as Mike Clark, who worked in the WWF Canadian office of Jack Tunney and has a lot of memories related to the WWF in Canada in the 1980s and 90s. That's going to be a good one. So keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. You can find us at our website, which is suawpod.com, as well as other places where you find all your favorite podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, and the rest. It's not that hard to find. So go ahead and subscribe. And go ahead and join the Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle, which is Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. We're a great bunch of people over there. If you want to see things like pictures of myself with stars and stripes in 1994 when I was in Brooklyn College, well, that's the place where you're going to want to go. You never know what's going to pop up on the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, so go ahead and join. I mentioned at the beginning of the show the magazines that I'm a part of. So if you want to get Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can go to pwi-online.com for print and digital copies. If you want to get Inside the Ropes magazine, go to insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy of my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, there are print, digital, and audio copies available on Amazon at barnesandnoble.com and other fine retailers. Again, it's not that hard to find, so get your copy if you haven't already. And if you haven't already been listening to the wrestling news, what the heck are you doing with your time? This is the way to keep tabs on what is happening in the professional wrestling business, courtesy of myself, Mike Sempervivi, Luke Kippelman, Brian Lash, Jace Nakarado, the whole Arcadian Vanguard team. Take a listen every morning at the Wrestling News com subscribe to that one too it's a great way to get a good five ten minute listen every morning and find out what's going on in the world of wrestling so there you go and if you're looking for me on social media i'm easily found you can find me on twitter and instagram at brian r solomon you can also find me on facebook my author facebook page brian solomon writer and on any one of those social media platforms, you will find a link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that personal issues draw money. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>